Thanks, Kurt. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up. Uh, a little different than we've been recently, though. You're not going to open to the to the Gospel of Luke. You're actually going to open to the book of Ephesians, so a little deeper in your New Testament. Um, as you get yourself sort of settled in there and, and while you're hunting for Ephesians 2, think of whether it be a movie or a story, uh, bonus points if it's Christmas related because that's the season of the year, uh, that brings you to happy tears. So not something that would cause you to cry because of the profound sadness, but something where you get to the conclusion and the moment is so joyful that you find yourself tearing up a little bit. I'll give you my Christmas version of that. It's from the movie White Christmas, and I don't know if that's because there's like a bunch of nostalgia because I grew up watching that with my family a lot, or if it's actually because of the moment, but there's the moment at the end of White Christmas where they've got the general all dressed up in his his old war uniform because they told him all of his suits were off being cleaned and there was nothing else to wear, and they walk him into sort of the dining area of the ski resort lodge that he owns in Vermont, and all of his former troops are there, and they all stand up at attention when the general comes in. And he's looking around, and he's already sort of getting kind of emotional because he's surprised by it, and then they all start singing, we'll follow the old man wherever he wants to go. He gets tears in his eyes. I'm weeping on the couch a little bit. And then things continue forward and magically like the back wall of the ski lodge opens up and it's snowing outside, which was the whole reason they were there anyway, because it was Vermont in the winter and it wouldn't snow and his ski lodge was going under. And Bing Crosby rallied up like all of the old troops via a late night show to come out to the lodge and support the old man. And I'm just a puddle of happy tears. And the reason that you get to whatever that moment is and whatever movie or story it is, or it could be a real life situation that you're thinking of, the reason there are happy tears at the end of that is because of everything that came before it. All the difficulties of the ups and downs and the trials and the times where you you thought or it looked like the character or you yourself, you weren't going to make it through the difficulties. And then you finally arrive at the moment where everything has come together and there's such joy in that that it, it causes you to get emotional. Whatever story that is, uh, movie, instance in your own life, kind of hold that in your mind here over the next 30 minutes because uh, we're going to come back to it. We're starting an Advent series this morning. And rather than doing our normal, which over the last few years has been that we're in a sermon series outside of the Gospels and we get to the Advent season and we jump into the Gospels in order to look at and celebrate the coming of Christ, we've been in the Gospel of Luke for a year. So we're actually going to pause the Gospel of Luke and we're going to go outside the Gospels in order to look at and celebrate and anticipate Jesus's arrival. And today we're gonna start with that in Ephesians chapter two. If you either didn't grow up going to church or maybe you didn't grow up going to some sort of liturgical kind of church that celebrated Advent, here's some quick Advent history for you. The word Advent comes from a a Latin word, Adventus, which is just a direct translation of a Greek word. Perugia. Now, in the New Testament, Perugia is typically kind of the shorthand way that's used to talk about the second coming of Jesus. But all that word means is like arrival or presence or official visit. And so in Latin, when the word Adventus is talked about, typically what's thought of is like the emperor is coming to your town and he's making his official visit. He's going to have presence there among you. And so 
In church history, when we start talking about anticipating the coming of Christ, that word adventus is what the church used to celebrate the official coming of the King of Kings, his presence and arrival among his people. And so in church history, this kind of season of Advent, four weeks before the celebration of Christmas, was used kind of as like a balance to Lent in the spring. In Lent, you would spend some time focusing your hearts on the crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then at Advent, on sort of the back half of the calendar year, we would spend some time preparing our hearts to celebrate the coming or the arrival, the presence of Jesus Christ. And so in a way, the historical church used this as like two anchors on the sides of the year. Lent on one part, Advent on the other. And typically in the celebration, there was a very specific way that this was done. And it's different from how we do it today. Initially, Advent was celebrated as two weeks that were given to focusing on Jesus's first official visit at Christmas, and then two weeks to focusing on the fact that he would come again and his presence and arrival and official visit would be made known at his second coming. And it served as this way to remind the church, we live between these two things. Celebrating the first arrival and presence and official visit of the King of Kings and awaiting the second arrival presence or official visit of the King of Kings. In modern times, it's typically four weeks used to focus directly on Jesus's coming the first time. And the reason for that shift is to kind of help the church center its heart on Christ in the middle of all the cultural stuff that sort of swims around Christmas. That at least when we arrive on Sunday mornings and do this corporately or in our own private time with the Lord, there's a daily, weekly sort of rhythm to bringing our hearts and our minds to focus on the coming of Christ rather than just sort of all the like seasonal Christmas stuff that has been attached to the holiday. And so we're gonna join in that over the next four weeks. We're gonna do it by going outside the gospels and looking at the coming of Jesus. And we're gonna start that in Ephesians chapter two. And we're gonna start it with a very particular theme this morning and that theme is brokenness. That's the necessary starting point for a celebration of Jesus Christ. Darkness, sin, fallenness, and brokenness, which I will acknowledge are not typical holiday themes, but they are the right place to begin. In fact, Paul David Tripp says it well in the intro to our Advent devotional that we started on Wednesday. He talks about this reality this way. He says, only when you accept the very, very bad news of Jesus's birth will you then be excited about its very, very good news. And so we're gonna start with the very, very bad news this morning. And to find that and to sort of get our hearts and minds and, and hands around that reality, as well as then to savor the good news, we're gonna use the first seven verses of Ephesians chapter two. And this is the main takeaway this morning, that Advent reminds us that a big problem with a big savior produces big joy. A big problem with a big savior produces big joy. If you've got a Bible with you, whether on a device or you've got a hard copy, we're gonna read Ephesians 2, 1 to 7, and it's a shorter passage. So if you're able to, would you stand as we read the word of God? Ephesians 2, starting in verse one, says this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, 
as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You have been saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Lord, for the chance to gather as a church and to embrace this rhythm of spending intentional time focusing on the coming of Christ and his presence among his people. God, I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit here among us, God, would help us to not shy away from an honest look at the reality of sin. God, I pray that your spirit would illuminate for us, no matter how long we've been walking in relationship with you or if we're yet to enter into that, God, would you help our hearts to see not just the truth of sin as a construct, but help us to see the reality of sin in our own lives, the power of sin in the world as a whole, the darkness and the depth of its reality, God. But would your Holy Spirit also help us to celebrate that the solution to that deep and troublesome problem is even greater. God, would our hearts rejoice in the truth of Christ, his presence among us, and the fact that he has overcome the reality of sin, God? Would you help us to cherish that this Christmas season? God, start us in the right place so that we can have a joy that matches the true fullness of what Christ did in his life and death. God, we pray this in his matchless name, amen. Then you can have a seat. Here's how we're gonna do this. We want to focus on brokenness. We wanna kind of try to get comfortable with the tension of darkness despite the joy and the light of this season. And the first three verses of Ephesians chapter two is gonna help us do that. Then we are going to look forward to the joy of Christ's coming Uh, it does us no good to gather as a church and not celebrate the beauty of the gospel. So then verses four through seven will help us do that. And my hope is to put all of that into the context of Advent today, but also the bigger picture of Israel waiting for the coming of this Christ and this Messiah. So that's where we're headed. We're gonna start with the first three verses. So look at those with me again. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts and were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. There's a sort of a a historic framework through which the church has looked at those three verses and talked about the reality of sin. And so we're gonna use that this morning. The first jumps out at us in the first four words of verse chapter three. Now, if you were reading this in Greek, all seven verses here, five sentences in the CSB translation, depending on what translation you have, it could be four or five sentences, depending on how they chose to write that. This is one sentence in Greek. It's over 70 words long. I would challenge you to go home later today, write a 70 word sentence and get all the punctuation correct. It's going to require some semicolons you might need to brush up on when and why to use those. But this is over 70 words in Greek. 
one sentence that might be the best one sentence description of the gospel in all of the Bible. And it starts in the necessary place and the picture is grim and you were dead. That's the beginning because that's the reality of sin. Sin makes us spiritually dead. Obviously, Paul is not talking about physical death here. If he were, there would be no one in this room right now. This is spiritual death. In fact, if you grabbed a fancy New Testament Greek to English dictionary lexicon and you looked up the entry for this word that's used here in Ephesians 2 verse 1, you would see the following options. Dead, lifeless, corpse, dead person. Those are your four choices for inserting into this place. And no matter what English translation of the Bible you pick up, the word they use is dead. That's what it means. There's like no secret hidden meaning here. When Ephesians chapter two, verse one says that you were dead, it means dead. To borrow from Jesus's language that is captured in the gospel of John, Jesus talks about being like a branch cut off from the vine. You are spiritually disconnected from the source. That's what sin does to us. And therefore you're dead. Why is this? Well, Paul tells us, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's the thing that has made you dead. Sin, but it hasn't just made you dead. Keep going. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world and according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. That's the second truth that we get about sin. Sin makes us spiritually dead. Sin makes us thoroughly disobedient. We get a bit of clarity about Paul, what Paul is talking about here. Because remember, he's writing to a church. He's writing to people who have been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so he makes it clear that this is true of you previously, before Christ. Sin made you dead and it made you thoroughly disobedient. In your deadness, all you could do was disobey. And if you're using a CSB, which is the translation that I use up here, Christian Standard Bible, or if you're holding an NIV, New International Version, the translation doesn't do this to the phrase here. If you've got an ESV or an NASB or you're holding a new King James or an old King James version, it does us a better service here to what's being said. Why? Because the end of, chapter, of verse two says this. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of the world and the ruler of the power of the air. The spirit now working in the, in your translation says, sons or children of disobedience. Paul uses that for a specific reason. In this culture, at this time, if you were to call someone a son of fill in the blank, you were saying that that word, the adjective that you put in the blank, is the defining characteristic of that individual. So when Paul says that Barnabas is the son of encouragement, it is encouragement that is core to who Barnabas is. That's what defines him. When Jesus gives the disciples James and John the nicknames sons of thunder, He's making a statement about who they are at their core. Paul says, in your deadness, it's not just that you were kind of disobedient. It's that the defining characteristic of who you were 
is spiritual disobedience. That's the reality of sin. That's its depth inside of us. That before Christ, characteristic to all of us is the reality of disobedience and sin. That is the truth of sin. Sin makes you spiritually dead, makes us thoroughly disobedient. And then if we keep reading on from verse, or in verse three, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath. Sin makes us utterly doomed. Sons or children of disobedience, Paul carries that thought out and he says, and children of wrath. The defining characteristic of a person in their sin is that they are dead, they're marked by disobedience, and wrath is what's to come. We're doomed. We're characterized by that. And sometimes people are quick to say that God in the Old Testament was a God of wrath and anger, but you get to the New Testament and God is a God of grace and mercy and love as if there was some fundamental shift in the reality of who God is when you flipped from Malachi to, Genesis, or to uh, Matthew. That's not the case. God is eternally consistent. He's always been just and wrathful towards sin. He's also always been gracious and merciful and loving, which we'll come to here in a couple of moments. But for the time being, it's worth noting that if you hold that dichotomy that God in the Old Testament was a God of wrath and anger and in the New Testament is a God of grace and mercy and love, then you get to the end of Ephesians 2 verse 3 and you're left with a pretty confounding picture because Paul is not sugarcoating the reality of our sin. You're dead, you're disobedient, and you're completely doomed because wrath is what you deserve. Before Jesus, we were D-E-A-D, dead because of our to-the-core characteristic disobedience. And the only thing coming our way was wrath. We were doomed. And Paul finishes the sentence to underscore the point by saying, as the others were also. This is the case for everybody. No one escapes this. No one gets a pass. No one gets a buy. We want to really try to kind of camp out and sit in the truth of this. And so what I want to do is uh, illustrate this reality. In fact, what I'm going to do is, is try to illustrate for us and put into a visual how it is that the New Testament and all of the Bible talks about the reality of sin. And I'm going to use these three boxes. I'm going to write me on the middle box. I could write you but that would feel like me being mad at you. So I'm gonna put me on the box. This is every single human being made in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully created, an absolute work of his creative genius and wonder made in his image. Every single one of us. Now the Bible talks about sin in two very specific ways. The Bible says that the nature of sin is such that it is in each and every one of us, infects us to our absolute core. And so lurking inside me and therefore each and every individual is sin. 
It fills us completely. All of our thoughts and inclinations, Paul says at the start of Ephesians chapter two. But that's not the only way that the Bible describes sin because the picture is actually larger than that. The Bible also says that not only are, are, is sin present in you, but the reality is also that you are in sin. And so the biblical picture of the reality of sin is that sin is in you and you are in sin and this is why you are doomed. Because God looks down from heaven, holy and righteous and just in every way and all he sees is sin. And even though our sort of postmodern happy thoughts in America would be that, well, all you've got to do to get out of this problem is look inside yourself. Well, hold on. The Bible tells me that inside of myself is sin. Okay, that's fine. Look outside yourself. Look to someone else. Well, the Bible says that when you behave, you are acting in sin. But the Bible also paints the picture, Genesis chapter 3, Romans chapter 8, that all of creation is marred by the presence of sin, subject to futility, broken. You can't look outside yourself and find the answer any easier than you can look inside yourself and find the answer. And Paul says, doomed. That's the truth, the reality of sin. That's why at Advent, we, we, we need something outside the system to come and fix the problem because I can't fix it from inside myself and I can't fix it by looking to something in this broken world outside of myself. Sin is in me and I am in sin and I need something outside the system to come and to solve the problem. That is the very, very bad news of Jesus' coming. And then to rush past that is to miss the depth of the problem. It's to minimize the need for a savior. But in this one sentence statement of the gospel, Paul doesn't stop there. Look at verse four. Paul then gives three statements about us being with Christ. And they stand out really boldly in the Greek because the with Christ part is actually a prefix on the front end of the verb. So you see this rhythm happen three times. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ. There's the first one. Salvation makes us alive with Christ. Sin makes us dead. Salvation makes us alive. You're no longer dead in your sin. Thanks to the grace of God, by faith in Jesus Christ, you are made alive with Christ. The exact same power that raised him from the physically dead has raised you from the spiritually dead. Keep going. Made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him. Salvation raises us to new life with Christ. It isn't just that you're now alive and you're like spiritually breathing and that's it. You've been raised to new life with Christ. Sin makes us disobedient, marked by disobedience, characterized by disobedience. When you're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, the defining characteristic of you now is that you've got new life with Christ. You are defined by him. 
You're no longer living a, a life marked by your disobedience. You're living a life marked by the presence of Christ and obedience to Christ, who's made you alive and is now animating everything about your life. This is why Paul will go on to say in verses eight through 10 of this chapter that you're this masterpiece created by God who has good works mapped out for you. In your deadness and disobedience, you could not do those good works. But now, alive with Christ, raised to new life that's defined and animated by him, those good works are certain in your future and God has them mapped out for you. They weren't possible before, but they are now because you are alive and you have been raised with Christ. And then if we continue on, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses, you are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. Salvation seats us at the Father's right hand with Christ. You're no longer doomed. In fact, the exact opposite is true. Salvation means that all the benefits of sonship are yours. Sin makes us doomed. Salvation, thanks to Christ, brings us this unbelievable hope. You are seated at the right hand of God, the Father, in Christ. He's at the Father's right hand and you're there with him. And it's not just some future sort of thing where one day I'll be taken up into glory and then I'll join Christ. The biblical picture is that you're in Christ right now and he's seated at the right hand of the Father and it is as though right now in this moment you are seated there with him and all the benefits of his sonship are yours. That's the wonder of the gospel. Sin in you and you in sin made you doomed. You were dead and disobedient and wrath is what awaited, but now thanks to Christ, you've been made alive, you've been raised to new life, and you've been seated at the right hand of the Father, which means we need to redo our boxes because the biblical picture of with Christ is similar to the biblical picture of our life in sin. The Bible says that when you are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, this is actually in the book of Colossians, that the great mystery of the gospel is Christ in you. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's no longer sin in you that marks you, it is Christ in you that marks you. And so now, here's you, and Christ is hidden there, tucked inside of you, animating your life, making you alive. But that's not the end of it. Because twice in this passage, Paul made it clear that it's not just Christ in you. The good news of the gospel is also you in Christ. And so you're seated at the right hand of God in Christ. God looks down from heaven now and he sees Christ and you are tucked inside of him and Christ is in you and now it's no longer you and sin and sin in you, it's you and Christ and Christ in you. And that is the beauty of the gospel. And the only reason why this is really, really good news is because you and sin and sin in you is terrible. 
We don't do the world. We don't do lost people. We don't do ourselves any favors if we downplay the reality of sin so as to somehow make Christ seem bigger. The way you make Christ seem bigger is to get your heart and your mind squarely around just how bad the reality of sin is. Paul says you were doomed to wrath, but God, rich in mercy and because of his great love for you, made you alive with Christ, raised you up with Christ, seated you at the Father's right hand in Christ. Why? So that he might make known to the world the immeasurable goodness and glory of his kindness through his people in Christ. That's verse seven. So we celebrate Advent. We're celebrating that Christ came and made this possible. But this is only really good news. And only brings the kind of happy tears sort of joy at the end of maybe one of your favorite movies brings because sin is so bad. And to rush past this is to downplay the wonder and the glory and the beauty of Jesus. To rush past the reality of sin, to skirt the truth of pain and brokenness and darkness also helps or also causes us to miss the full joy of his first coming. Advent reminds us that a big problem with a big savior produces big joy. The longing for Jesus that we do during Advent involves remembering the reality that he came in response to our doomed us in sin and sin in us state. The longing of Advent on this side of the cross is also an attempt to put ourselves in the place of Israel who waited thousands of years for the promised Messiah. This passage from Ephesians is a great gospel picture for us. It also can help us put ourselves in place of Israel waiting for Jesus to come the very first time. The key phrase in this passage is at the start of verse four, but God. We're told that we're stuck in our deadness and our disobedience and in our doomed reality, and that God acted. And we're told why it is that he acted, because he is rich in mercy. Literally, in Greek, he is plusios on elias. And it's like Paul there in the middle of verse four is stumbling over himself to describe just how great this nature of God is. God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us. He wants you to understand both of those things. They're both rooted in an Old Testament word. That Old Testament Hebrew word is the word hesed. God has what he describes himself as hesed love. That means faithful love, covenant love, commitment love. Hesed love is all about God's commitment to love in a steadfast and a faithful way. And that idea typically gets translated into the New Testament as mercy. Why? Because in God's hesed love, he chooses to act mercifully, lovingly toward those who don't deserve it. He's committed to loving his people faithfully even when they are unfaithful. He has always been committed to faithful love despite Israel's unfaithfulness. He's committed to faithful love to his people, his church, despite our sin and unfaithfulness. 
a God of Hesed kind of love is actually the way that Yahweh, God, describes himself to Moses on Mount Sinai after the whole golden calf incident. So Moses goes up on the mountain, receives the law, comes down with it, and it's this incredible moment where he's gonna explain to Israel what it looks like to live in right relationship with the Lord, and there they are worshiping an idol that they have crafted out of the gold that they had with them. And then Moses goes back up on the mountain. What am I gonna do with these people? They're stiff-necked, he says. And we're told this in Exodus 34. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with Moses there and proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord passed in front of Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, hesed. Maintaining faithful love, hesed, to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and rebellion and sin. Moses goes up on the mountain, totally flabbergasted and exhausted by Israel. What are we gonna do with these people? And what is God's response? I'm a God of faithful, covenant, committed love. And I will be faithful to that for a thousand generations, God says. And so you fast forward a few thousand years and the history of Israel has been full of brokenness and unfaithfulness to God. In fact, if you wanted to summarize the Old Testament, one way that you could summarize it would be to say that the Old Testament is the story of a faithful God, faithfully loving, unfaithful people. That's the Old Testament. They get booted from their promised land into exile. They're partially brought back. Their temple gets destroyed. It gets rebuilt, but it's a shell of its former glory. And then all of a sudden God goes silent. And for 400 years, not four tidy weeks of Advent, for 400 years, the Israelite people wait in silence. God is saying nothing. There are no prophets. They're not seeing him move in the ways that he has throughout the rest of their history. And you can just imagine that in their prayers, they're praying, God, don't you remember? You're a God of faithful love. You said that you would be faithful for thousands of generations. Where are you? And then a baby born in a field and he gets introduced as a savior the messiah 400 years of waiting in brokenness and darkness wondering if god is going to be faithful but god rich in mercy because of his great love for us sent his son It was years of anguish and brokenness and darkness, generations of it, wondering if God had forgotten his own words and promises, but he had not. In the joy of that moment of angels singing out in the field is just as strong as the depth of the problem. And so Paul says, in your own brokenness and darkness, God, because of his rich mercy and in his great love, sent Jesus We do a disservice to our spiritual joy if we downplay the true despair of sin. Israel waited thousands of years. Their despair was on full display. It was always before their eyes. And the joy of the coming of Christ is in response to that. That's why angels sing out in this field. At Advent, we join in the waiting. We hold the tension of our brokenness as a means toward deepening our appreciation for God's arrival, for his presence, for his official visit. And so we sing these Christmas carols that are very familiar to us. One of them that we commonly sing around this time is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. 
maybe when that comes on the radio or we sing it at church, you kind of like lapse into sort of autopilot. But the words of this song are an incredible picture of this sort of expectant longing at Advent that holds out the truth of brokenness while longing for a savior. There are like seven verses to this song. The three most common that we sing say this, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appears. Mourns, doomed. O come, thou rod of Jesse, free, thine own from Satan's tyranny, you in sin, sin in you. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory over the grave. O come, thou dayspring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. The true like fullness of our joy in Christ is tied to the depth of our problem in sin. And when we get our hearts and our minds around the truth of sin, we then can see the full joy of the Savior. But to minimize one is to minimize the other. And so this morning, we are going to join in with Israel here in their longing and their waiting. We're going to join in in sort of the larger church-wide Advent celebration. We're going to sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, ransom your people. Let's stand up and sing.